0: Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is the Akhavanek Beaker Burial Project. The Beaker People, with Dr. Alison Sheridan. Today we're talking to Dr. Alison Sheridan from the National Museum of Scotland. And we were really lucky to get to do a Skype interview with her, And she's one of the premier people to speak to about Neolithic and Bronze Age sites in Britain. As you'll soon discover, we were a little bit starstruck, and for good reason. Dr. Sheridan drops all kinds of little hints and tidbits that just begged for a follow-up. But because we only had 30 minutes with her for this interview, and it was specifically on the topic of Ava, we couldn't follow every rabbit hole. And there were a couple of occasions where Z and I had a debate via charades on whether or not to follow up on something fascinating that Dr. Sheridan had just mentioned. It was a tough call every time. But Dr. Sheridan was such a fantastic guest that we're hoping to be able to speak more with her about prehistoric Britain in more detail in the future. But before we start, a quick word on the audio. We know that our side was a little bit rough. The mic on our end blew out and we didn't notice until after the interview was over. But it was such an interesting interview that we figured you wouldn't mind. All right, here we go.
1: Okay, I'm uh, Dr Alison Sheridan, and I'm Principal Curator of Early Prehistory at National Museum Scotland. And my bailiwick is Europe north of the Alps, from the Paleolithic to the end of the Bronze Age. But my own research speciality is the Neolithic, Chalcolithic, and Early Bronze Age period in Britain and Ireland. And I also look after the human remains store of the National Museum Scotland. And uh, this, this contains rather a lot of skeletons of the same period as the Achaecvanic one. So let's
2: start back with where our listeners, what they know. How did you get involved with the Ava project?
1: I got involved because Maya came to me um, because I am known to be very active in the field of Chalcolithic and Bronze Age studies in Britain. Um, I was an editor of a book called Is There a British Chalcolithic? Which the answer is a resounding Yes. Um, and, and also, I've been doing a radiocarbon dating program for many, many years, um, so that we've been establishing the chronology of Copper Age and Early Bronze Age graves in Scotland. And the term Chalcolithic, it's a Greek word meaning copper and stone, and it, it, it refers to the sort of Copper Stone Age. Um, as far as we're concerned, it's the period from about 2500 to 2200 BC, when the very first metal appeared and metal using appeared in Britain and Ireland and um, this is a whole new technology for us and it was introduced by continental copper users and gold users as well at the time and we know this because they actually opened up a copper mine in the southwest of Ireland at a place called Ross Island in County Kerry and the copper from there was used in Scotland
0: so i have two follow-up questions for that um the first is how can you explain the process that we go through to identify where copper comes from and then uh the the secondary question is could you explain a bit about uh the trade routes that that illuminates for us.
1: Yes, there are various ways of sourcing copper. And ironically, one way to do it is to look at lead isotope signature, because a lot of copper has got a little bit of lead in it. And uh, by, by doing that, that's a very good way of pinpointing the source. But actually, if you look at if you use something like X-ray fluorescence spectrometry to look at the chemical composition of the copper, you can see its major, minor, and trace element composition. And by having sampled raw copper from a lot of different places and doing comparative XRF analysis, then the um, the scientists have been able to pinpoint the fact that the Ross Island copper was used very extensively. Uh, from about 2500-2400 BC. And the way that it travelled around was by some fairly sophisticated trading routes. And we know that the way it got into Scotland was via um, the southwest of Scotland, so people were sailing up, probably sailing up the Clyde, um, along the west side of Scotland and there's a particular place called Kil- Kilmartin Glen which is in Argyll, and it's as though the people there must have controlled the flow of copper uh, because they got rich very quick indeed and their graves are very, very elaborate um, and they show off uh, their wealth by having carvings of bronze or copper axe heads on the kists in which they're buried. And... Basically, Kilmartin lies at the southwest end of the Great Glen, which is Loch Ness. Um, And from there, people could sail up, up Loch Ness to the northeast of Scotland, um, which is where they had a very, very active metal using industry. And as soon as people started to make bronze around 2200 BC by alloying copper with tin, then this industry in the northeast of Scotland, the so-called Migdale industry, really, really took off. And they were producing a lot of axe heads in particular, which they were then circulating around elsewhere in Britain.
2: Um, If we go back to the AVA site in particular, so we know why now I may reached out to you in the first place. But then what did you actually do with the site? What what did you investigate?
1: Well, um, actually, I... I'm so old that I remember Bob Gurley, um, who died many, many years ago now. And he, he was a wonderful guy. And he did a lot of good, a lot of very good excavation in the northeast of Scotland. And it was just a great shame that he died before he was able to write this site up. But because... I am a specialist. I, I spend my life writing specialist reports and writing about the Copper Age and the early Bronze Age. I was able to advise Ava. So I was able to say, OK, if you you know you really need to get this kind of analysis done. And do you know that this guy, I, I think it was myself that put her onto Tom Booth in the natural history museum he's done wonderful work on trying to work out whether people's bodies had been actually chemically mummified he's found that in in um, in a place called Klug Hallen in uh, South Uist and so he, using his technique of analysis he checked to see whether Ava had perhaps been mummified and and he found that she hadn't been but it was also through him that her ancient DNA has been analyzed and that is a really exciting new development
0: Can you tell us a bit about that?
1: The fact is that Ava has been done, but her results haven't been published yet. But what has been published by David Reich of the Harvard Medical School very recently is a preprint of a major DNA project that he's done where he's analysed a whole load of other beaker-associated individuals from Britain.
2: What do you think the Ava burial tells us about the beaker people?
1: Well, um, she is one of the furthest north users of a beaker, um, in Scotland, um, there were some sort of funny beakers that have turned up in Orkney, and in Shetland there are a few beakers as well. But essentially, the style of beaker that was found at Aghavanich is—it's um, kind of in line with what we see elsewhere in mainland Scotland and elsewhere in Britain. And uh, so she was likely to have been, you know, a, a member of a, f- a local farming community. Um, and she was, she was buried with the honor of food for the afterlife, um, which tells us that people believe that after you die, you go on some kind of journey and you need some sustenance for that journey. So you need drink or food or, or both. And in fact, the cattle scapula suggests to us that she went with a you know, joint of meat as well as something in her beaker.
2: And this actually parallels with another site that I think you did some work on um, farther south, uh, where a woman, uh, we believe, is a burial with a woman um, who was actually cremated, and they found jewelry, and then I, I believe yep. like a joint of pork. Could you tell us a bit yes, about that? Yes.
1: There, there are several um, early Bronze Age graves that have um, pig bones in, um, suggesting that, yeah, it, it was indeed a joint of pork. So either pork or beef. That was the preferred joint of meat to go in with the dead. And uh, I, I think it's, it's a Lovely concept, and we know that people would have been dressed. Um, you know, so obviously, they you know you don't go, you don't get put into one of these graves naked. And in and the fact, there was an, a really spectacular waterlogged early Bronze Age kiss that was found in Devon a few years ago at a place called White Horse Hill, and uh, that individual had been um, cremated, but they had set aside the clothes that she had been wearing. Um, so they must have given you know given her a kind of a funeral. Um, like a shroud for the actual cremation but she, what she had as her clothing was beautiful calf skin or, or deer skin with an inset rectangular panel of woven uh, nettle fiber so it's finds like that that really give you this amazing window I mean into that's 4,000 years old or nearly 4,000 years old um, and so we have to imagine that, that you know, Ava would have been dressed somehow in her finery. Um, and a, a little to the south of her at a place called Rameldry Farm in Fife, there was a man who had been buried. He was just slightly later than her, maybe a hundred years so later. And he'd been buried in a jacket that had six buttons on it. And five of those buttons were made of jet from Whitby in Yorkshire, which is a long, long way away. And the sixth, was made of a stone called Lizardite that came from the Lizard in Cornwall, which is about 800 kilometres away. A heck of a long way away. And so, yeah, I mean, people were really snappy dresses. At least for that final moment. (laughs) Well, I mean, the amazing thing about him was that um, you could tell by looking at the wear on the jet buttons that they weren't all put onto his jacket at the same time. So some of them were quite old. And um, one of them, amazingly, had been embellished with tin, metallic tin, which itself must have come from Cornwall as well. But then there was one button that was virtually brand new. So it still had the scratches on the bottom side of it from where they had um, you know, made it smooth. And it's almost as a, you imagine the scene where there's this revered elderly member of society. He was, he was in his 40s or 50s, which in those days would have been really old. And, um, and his family and friends must have realized he wasn't going to last very long. But they said, well, we can't possibly bury him with a jacket with just five buttons. So they had to do you know, the equivalent of you know, fax down or Skype down to Whitby, um, down <laughs> the coast, yeah, which is maybe a two-day two sail away, a one-day sail away. And they, they put, procured from the specialist jet workers there a button so that he could be buried with six buttons, as was the norm. Amazing. <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. And so, I, I, mean, the, I mean, the other thing is I've been incredibly privileged to be part of the Beaker People Project which is a major project run by Professor Mike Parker Pearson of, of University College London. And over the last oh, 10 years or so, it has been doing fantastic analyses, so isotopic analyses to tell um, with the beaker users exactly what they ate, and uh, what their diet was, whether it was a hard diet that left scratches on your teeth or not. And also they've used strontium and oxygen sulfur isotope um, analysis from the enamel of people's big molar teeth to find out whether they grew up locally or whether they were incomers.
0: And what did you find out? Were they incomers?
1: Well, uh, yeah, I mean, it all started because there was one incredibly famous incomer called the Amesbury Archer. And this was a man who had been buried near Stonehenge and when they did strontium and oxygen analysis on his enamel, they found out that there was no way he could have been born in Britain. He was probably born somewhere like Bavaria or Switzerland. And so in the course of his life, he must have traveled hundreds of kilometers. And, and it wasn't just him. And, and in fact, the Beaker People Project has found that there, there's a handful of people who had clearly traveled from the continent. But there's also a more subtle pattern of people who might move, you know, 10, 15, 25 miles or so. Um, so it might be that a a woman would marry into a a community. And they, they can tell, for example, on, in Yorkshire, whether she was brought up on the Yorkshire Wolds or not. And there's one particular part of England called the Peak District in Derbyshire, which is sort of getting on for Northwest England, where a lot of the people had come in from elsewhere. And of course, all of this um, isotope analysis meshes in with the brand new work that's just been done on the ancient DNA of Beaker using people. And so, you know, as we speak, the situation, our knowledge is getting enriched all the time. And the story is getting much richer and much more complicated.
2: So what is the story with all these new analyses and everything we've, we've sort of figured out and put together and tried to build a narrative? What would you say that narrative is as best we know it right now? for the Beaker people?
1: It was always thought. I mean, if, if you were to ask me 100 years ago, I would have said, oh, well, the Beaker people were a foreign invading force who came with their weapons and they killed people. Lala. And then in the 1970s, people turned away from that and said, that's just hooey. Um, you know, you mustn't try and explain all sorts of change in terms of new people coming in. However... It can't be denied that the the package of novelties that you get with beaker pottery which itself it's a continental style of pottery which is completely different from the kind of pottery p- people were using in late Neolithic Britain and metal using that was a completely new technology and there was novel kinds of archery gear so they started using barbed and tanged arrowheads instead of leaf-shaped arrowheads etc cetera, etc cetera. so there's a whole package of novelties that seem to come in and when once a- the Amesbury archer Um, was analysed, and they found that he must be an immigrant from the continent, then people started to think, well, hang on a minute, maybe, yeah, maybe it was people coming in. And you can understand, the Amesbury Archer probably came because of the fame of Stonehenge, because by that stage, the the big sarsen and trilithins were up, and it was kind of party central. You know, so at midwinter solstice, Stonehenge was the place to be. (laughs) and people had these major feasts and they must and the fame of Stonehenge must have traveled to to the continent so people would have come almost as a kind of pilgrimage and to join in the fun and we know from um from the miners in Ross Island in County Kerry that copper miners and metal prospectors were coming as well and we think that other people were coming because of a sort of it's almost like Homeric ideal of you, you, you know, if you're a thrusting young man, you want to uh, make your place in society, you make a heroic journey. Yeah. And preferably you come home and you tell all your chums about it and you really impress the hell out of them. Okay. Um, and so we think that maybe with the Amesby archer, it was a little bit of that, you know, so he was making his amazing journey and it might be one of many that he'd made because in his, I mean, he was buried with about a hundred grave goods, including copper knives or daggers where the copper itself must've come from Spain or somewhere along the Atlantic facade. So we have to imagine that maybe this guy traveled right around you know, the Atlantic Europe during his lifetime. Um, and of course there was, so we think there were Im- immigrants coming in. And obviously the locals would be aware that these are, you know, weird foreigners. And just like Brexit nowadays, I'm sure some of them said, we don't want these foreigners. They're, they're th- coming over here and they're, they're, they're taking our women. They're threatening us, et cetera, you know. I don't think there was all out war. I think that'd be incredibly naive. Um, the genetic information is telling us that there was a, there was a new kind of genetic makeup that was coming in and over the course of a few years, this had a big influence on the gen- genetic makeup of the population as a whole. Now, we have to be very, very, very careful in interpreting this information because, frankly, the geneticists don't know how many, you know, imagine these Casanovas coming in from the continent, you know, having their wicked way with many, many women. Um, I said to them, well, how many Casanovas would it take to, to produce the observed uh, signature that we see? And they said, well, we don't know. And therefore, I think it'd be rash to talk in terms of mass migration. Um, It might have been hundreds of people, fine. Might even have been a thousand or a bit more, we just cannot say. We know that people here reacted to them. So, in the south of England, where there had been this tradition of building vast monuments like Stonehenge, they built another vast monument called Silbury Hill, which is an, an, an enormous mound, you know and um, they did this after beakers started to be used in Britain, and building this gigantic mound was a was a way of saying, "I say, folks, you know there are you with your fancy foreign ways and your metal, but here we are able, able to um, gather together many, many people to build this fantastic monument na na you know and likewise." <laughs> Um, we know that, that people, you know, some people said, Oh, I like this beaker stuff, or I like this metal. So we're going to use beakers ourselves. So there certainly was a process of adoption. Yeah, adoption and right. adaptation. Okay, so in parts of northeast Scotland, we know that people were burying people and burying beaker pots in brand new monuments of their own design. So they were making these things called recumbent stone circles, like a stone circle with a big um, flat circle that's um, orientated towards the moon um, mm-hmm. and orientated towards you know, distant parts of the uh, on the horizon, and so this wasn't a continental style of monument but it was in a way if you imagine it's the big men of northeast scotland this was their way of showing off so they had a fantastic burial monument which is their own design and they were using this newfangled pottery to show that they were they were hip and they were you know absolutely you know up to date with the latest fashions so i think it's you know we, our models have to be quite sophisticated and you have to listen to what the archaeology tells you so there was an a, there, there was immigration there was adoption, there was adaptation as well, and and trying to untangle that mix is is really a fascinating task of the archaeologist. And so, Achevanich isn't up there among the very earliest beakers; um, it's several generations into the process. So we may well discover when the results for Achevanich come through that she has the same kind of genetic makeup as the people who had come in. Uh, several generations before. But it could be that she, um, like many other people, would represent a mixing of incomers with people who'd already always been here. I haven't seen the results for Ava. And I think we should wait until they get published. And I'm sure they'll be very, very exciting. But this is what I predict that they might be, might be telling us.
2: So we have this story where we've got some sort of in-migration, we're pretty sure, of actual people. It wasn't just fashion. It wasn't just people adopting... You know, blue jeans in China—the sort of yeah. classic example—but it looks like there was this pre-existing sense of Neolithic group. Do we know how these people would have generally lived? Were they farming at this point? Was there something else?
1: Yeah, yeah, very, very definitely. We're, you know, people had been farming in Britain since about four thousand BC, if not before. So there's generations upon generation of of farmers, and uh, and depending on how how wealthy those farmers were and how much surplus they could generate, um, some of them chose to build very imposing monuments such as Stonehenge. And ironically, we know very very little about the actual people and how they buried each other or how they dealt with the dead between 3,000 and 2,500 BC. And funnily enough, just about half an hour before we started this conversation, I got a brand new radiocarbon date from a site called Meldon Bridge in the south of Scotland, which is where there was a cremated, deposit of cremated remains. And uh, somebody in University College London is, is trying to do a PhD on where are the dead of between 3,000 and 2,500. And I think the answer is a lot of them would be cremated and p- quite possibly a lot of them, they might well have scattered their ashes. So that it's impossible to track where these people ended up in just the same way as, you know, if you were to ask a modern population where a lot of people, you know, they be, they're, they're cremated now and their ashes are scattered as an archaeologist in the future, you couldn't find that person at all. Right. They weren't, they weren't thinking about us when they were doing this. <laughs> no, they certainly weren't. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, there's active research to try and find. I mean, for sure, people hadn't died out. There was a whole population here when, when the immigrants came in and had their interesting interactions with them. Um, so, yeah, it, and we know that they were using groovedware pottery. I mean, there's, there's quite a lot that we do know about these people. So in Orkney, for example, we have an amazing, Amazingly rich story. I mean, the people who were living in Scarabray lived there from about 2,900 to 2,500 BC. So just before Beakers came in, in Orkney, there was this really flourishing, quite hierarchical community. So, uh, you know, people were playing status games up there. And it's very interesting that Beakers didn't make a big impact in, in Orkney. Um, there there are a few, but essentially what we're looking at is the, the, the rise and fall of um, a society that went in for competitive, conspicuous consumption. So I think a lot of your visitors, your your listeners may well have heard of the Ness of Brodga, which is a fantastic ceremonial complex in Orkney. And there we know that people were, were using their site until 2500 BC, and then they went back and somewhere between 25 and 22 they had a massive massive feast featuring at least 400 cattle so this might be most of the cattle who were around in orkney at the time they slaughtered them and they ate them wow yeah. it's amazing it's like a sort of end end of times thing yeah and yeah. Uh, and ironically um, the only sherd of beaker pottery that was found at the ness of brogger was found immediately below and associated with these cattle bones so They were already using beaker pottery in Orkney when they did this final feast. But the feasting itself wasn't part of beaker tradition. It was an an indigenous Orcadian tradition. So, I mean, it's really, really interesting. I mean, they were doing weird and wonderful things in Orkney. So elsewhere um, at a site called Links of Notland, around 2250 BC, they killed 15 deer, red deer, and they piled them up on their side. And they just left them. And they prevented dogs from scavenging them. So here, oh, and more than that, they put a huge cod that they had caught on top of the heap of deer and two bird's wings as well. And again, why did they do that? It's, you know, yeah. to us, it's, yeah, it's it's not a rational thing, but it's a very ceremonial way of saying goodbye, you know, goodbye to all that. Um, maybe they abandoned their settlement to go and live somewhere else and then they came back later.
0: That's one of the things that I find um Not necessarily frustrating, but a little bit confusing when trying to wrap my head around this period. As we talk about the beaker people as a sort of overarching culture, like it's Mm. one large culture. And then you hear about these different sites that have wildly different cultural practices, but they just happen to also have beakers involved.
1: That's right. And I, th- I think the answer is that you do get an, an implantation of a completely new set of material culture, a completely new set of practices, um, and people who, you know, were using metal and all that kind of stuff. But then they had children, and they mixed with locals, and, you know, you get this kind of style drift over time. And in fact, um, th- there's a very, very good... Um, uh, researcher called Stuart Needham, who used to work at the British Museum, who is really the authority on the Copper Age and the Early Bronze Age. And uh, he said that, you know, around maybe about 2300, 2200 BC, there was an explosion in the use of beaker pottery. So it's almost as though from having been an exotic novelty where the minority of people in Britain would use it, then people said, okay, yeah, we buy this. And so everybody or lots of people chose to use beaker pottery. And you get a diversification in beaker styles and diversification in the way that beakers were used. So I think you can understand it in terms of adoption and adaptation.
0: Were there any non-beaker groups in Britain at the same time as this proliferation of, of beaker tradition?
1: yes they were and so the people who built silbury hill um in, which is near avebury in wiltshire not not a million miles away from stonehenge they were the local people okay and and silbury hill has been um, well dated now um and likewise the people who went down grimes graves um a flint mine in east anglia uh, in norfolk they were users of, of groovedware pottery and, and they've got dates for the flint mines there that show that they were mining flint at the same time as people on the surface were using beaker pottery. But frustratingly, for many parts of Britain, there's not a lot that we can say. We, we know that groovedware pottery had been in use from about, uh, well, 3,000 or 2,900 BC on, on the mainland until about 2,500 BC. But when they started to use beaker pottery, you're hard put to, to point to other pottery, you know, non-beak pottery that was still being used. And whether they were still using grooved or not, that's something that we're trying to answer now with programs of radiocarbon dating. And I think Caithness, the area where, um, Ava was buried, is particularly poorly served. It's a, it's fantastically rich in archaeology. And yet, if you were to say, okay, point to the, what was going on between 2800 and 2200 BC, it's very, very difficult. Um, to say precisely what was happening. So, yeah, sure, you get a few beakers being used. um, And in fact, nearby at a place called Battle Moss, um, I think Ava mentioned there were these stone alignments, which themselves are probably early Bronze Age. But we know that they post-date a grave with another beaker, which was crushed flat. I have that beaker in my office. And stylistically and typologically, it's a very early kind of beaker. So that... If, you know, if you've forced me to put a date on it, I would say that's 25th century BC. So, fascinatingly, we might have, you know, among the earliest beaker pottery in Caithness. But uh, I think, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's it's really good. But so we've got a lot of work to do to fill in the gaps. And you know there aren't a lot of archaeologists who are active in Caithness at the moment um a lot of the archaeological work that's been done in the past has focused on the rich iron age archaeology there because there you get a lot of brochs which are these iron age tower type structures um you also have fantastic neolithic chamber tombs and indeed one uh, this the the DNA work that we've been doing includes the finds from Taluk of Asari and Taluk and shonach which are chamber tombs in Caithness So, you know, you have to kind of watch this space and in about 15 years time, uh, we can fill in the the picture for you, I hope. On that, let's actually drill down a bit into the beakers themselves. So a lot of
2: your work in the Bronze Age has been on these burial beakers. When you investigate a beaker, what are you looking for and what are the tools you use to to answer those questions?
1: Well, I look for what it tells us about chronology and in fact i have done a program of radiocarbon dating of human remains associated with beakers in scotland and that has meshed in with or well, that was the foundation for the beaker people project which and also another beakers and people project that was from aberdeenshire um, where now we have a, a vast number of radiocarbon dates so our basically our beaker type of is fairly well established for scotland so that is to say, you know, the changes in beaker style, we can say, okay, that probably came in around 2300, whereas that one is about, that's a late one, so that's 2000 BC, Lala. La. And what do you mean by beaker style? Oh, well, I mean, the design, the shape of the pot, um, the way it was decorated, the motifs they used, the overall decorative scheme all that kind of stuff. But also, because I am involved in a whole it networks of analysis, I supplied samples of beaker pottery for um, a lady called Lucia Sobel, who did a PhD on lipid analysis of beakers and other um, Calcolithic and early Bronze Age pottery at um, the University of Bristol a few years ago. And she, surprising, we were all expecting alcohol, alcohol. And what she found was traces of milk Milk? Oh, no. Huh. Uh, yeah, and we said, hmm, that's, that's a bit funny. Milk in lots of beakers. And um, okay, you know, in, in a lot of cases, if you're firing a pot and you want to make it watertight, you will swish it around with with milk as soon as it comes out of being fired. And we asked the lipid people, well, could it be just that? And they said, well... Maybe, maybe not. We don't know. However, um, we have to remember that in many parts of the world they do ferment milk, so you can make an alcoholic beverage out of milk.
0: Right, like what they drink in Mongolia.
1: Indeed, that's right. Yeah, it may it may taste disgusting to us, but but it. You know, it, it it does the trick, um, <laughs> but but also in previous analyses, um, the organic residue. You know, sometimes you find the evaporated contents of what the pot had contained. So this is usually a little black crud, or or even a tide mark on the inside of the beaker. And previous people who've tried to do stuff like pollen analysis have come up with sometimes you get meadowsweet, and that's good because meadowsweet was used to as a sweetener for. Ale in the past. So ale is beer without the hops in. And if they were making ale at the time, it would it would be ale not beer because they didn't add hops to beer until the medieval period. (laughs) Savage. But we also know that they were putting Meadowsweet into kists because if you're if somebody's died in the summer and you're leaving the kist open so that everybody can come and pay their respects. In a little while, the body is going to whiff a little bit, yeah. <laughs> uh, whereas meadowsweet smells very nice. And um, a lot, a lot of beaker kists and other early Bronze Age kists have got meadowsweet pollen in them. And um, so it's quite possible that, you know, that st- stuff that ended up in the beaker was because of these floral tributes. However, there is another very interesting beaker from Fife at a place called Ashgrove. And a long time ago, a guy called Jim Dixon did, uh, or Camilla Dixon, did pollen analysis. And they found pollen from the lime tree. And this is really interesting because lime trees didn't grow in Scotland at the time. And they figured out that possibly it was from honey. So whatever was in the beaker had honey in it. And that honey must have come from outside of Scotland, probably from northern England. Okay, Because we know that, yeah, that people were in regular contact with each other, particularly up and down the East Coast. So between Scotland and Yorkshire, sure, they were getting, York, they were getting uh, jet, etc. They were getting tin from Cornwall um probably via a network of contacts and they were using the sea and rivers so boat transport was a very important way of of traveling around and it's it's much easier than walking obviously so these people were very well connected and for example down, back in the Kilmartin Glen where you have beakers and and uh, I mean in fact there you get one of the the earliest beaker graves in Scotland and this you know particular grave there you could lose it in Holland if you go to the, the, the Rhine Delta, the grave at Upper Largie is identical to the graves that you get in the Rhine Delta. So that's, and unfortunately it was, it was um, inserted into gravel and, and the acid that flows through gravel will destroy every trace of the body so there was no body left in the kist but, or in fact it wasn't even a kist it was a wooden chamber which again was a was a continental style of beaker grave um, but i put my money you know if there had been the remains there they would have said this person came from the netherlands and and as i said before in kilmartin glen they they were kind of monopolizing the movement of of copper from ireland and uh, and they showed off so that um, they showed off their wealth by by acquiring beautiful jet space plate necklaces that were made in Whitby in Yorkshire, which again would be maybe a three or four day journey away from there, and made by specialists. And also there is one particular pot where the top half of it is Irish style, and the bottom part of it is four little stumpy legs, which is the fashion for that kind of pottery that you get in Yorkshire. So in a single pot, it encapsulates the external links, you know, from southwest Scotland to Ireland and to Yorkshire as well. So these people, you know, they were in no way were they grunt, grunt, squat grunting savages. They were highly sophisticated. And in fact, if you were to dress them up in modern day clothing, you could walk past them and not, not realize. Mm-hmm. You know, they are no different from us. I think they were smarter than us in many ways.
2: <laughs> yeah, they had to take care of themselves on a level that we just don't have to. So I have one last question. <laughs> If you could answer anything, what is one big question that you would love answered about the British Bronze Age?
1: Oh, I I would love to know how many immigrants came and how... How precisely did the local people react to them? I do hope that it's a rather better situation than nowadays when we seem to be saying we don't want any foreigners and we're kind of rolling that clock back. It's a great shame because I think we have benefited over the years. I mean, after all, people seem to, you know, the Brexiteers seem to forget that we are all one way or another immigrants to Britain. And so yeah that's what that's what I'd like to find out.
2: Dr. Sheridan, thank you very much for your time. Um I believe these conversations will probably continue in the future.
1: Thank you very much. And thank you very much for your time.